If you would, look again at verse 9. Read verse 10 as well for a little bit of context. He says, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Yeah. So the entire section hinges on the statement found in the middle of verse 9. Verse 9 saying, For it is good that the heart be established by grace. It is good that the heart be established by grace. And that's really what we're going to look for as we go through the text. How is it that the heart is established by grace? But first, the author is going to tell us uh, how the heart is not established by grace. So let's begin there. How is the heart not established by grace? Verse 9 begins with the phrase, do not be. Now, it's in the present tense, so the author is saying to some in the fellowship, stop being carried about with various and strange doctrines. He's not warning them uh, about some strange doctrine that, that might perchance come to your city. He's not saying that. These false teachings were already there, and some of the fe- in the fellowship had gotten tied up in them. Some in the church were entertaining. They were occupied with these things. So he's telling them to get out of it. Stop being carried about by these various and strange teachings. And what is even more concerning is how this happened, which is often how it happens. The phrase carried about is in the passive voice, which implies that they were just being uh, led about by false teaching like a, a sheep with no brain. We just got caught up in it. I don't know what happened. Have you ever met people that got caught up in strange stuff and, and, and they just have no explanation for how they got into it, but one day they woke up, somebody shook them, probably the Holy Spirit, and they're like, I don't even know how I got here. I don't know how I got into this. I don't know even know what led to it. But they did, they got, they got caught up in it. And it was strange. And there was a multitude of them carried about, carried along. No thought given, nothing unchecked, or nothing was checked by the scriptures, the foundational things that they were taught. Um, And mind you, when it comes to this particular church, you might remember from Hebrews chapter 2 that how the author said that these people were trained, what it was exactly they were exposed to. He says the teaching came from Jesus himself, and then the apostles and was further confirmed by God through various signs and wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. Sound like an advantage to you? It does to me. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty good beginning. But, but what happened? What happened? And even worse was that it wasn't just one doctrine they were duped by. It was Many. It wasn't just one thing that floated through, it was an abundance of things. Couldn't they at least have identified one of the errors? One of the errors. What was the false teaching? Uh, The author uses the word strange, which carries with it the idea of novel. And you can't say novel anymore without everybody thinking of the virus, but it's the idea is new. It was novel. 
Something about it was novel. The context indicates that it had something to do with food, but not just any food. The author is talking about ritual food, something pertaining to the Jewish forms of worship. The reason we know that is because of verse 10. It's talking about the altar and eating, those in the tabernacle. It's something related to the temple, some, uh, something of, of Jewish forms of worship. But there's a problem. The author said, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not by what? Food. Food. You know, if, if the heart could be established by food, guess what I would look like? Because I'm, I'm pretty fond of grace. <laughs> but he says it's not with foods. So the new doctrine was not the introduction of ritual foods. The idea, it's the idea that the ritual foods had the ability to convey the grace of God to the eater. That's new. The idea of eating something, regardless of where it is or what it is, the idea of eating that could somehow convey the grace of God by which somebody could be established. He says, this doctrine is the strange doctrine. This is the novel concept that has come your way. Uh, ritual foods were always something the Jews were familiar with. That was prescribed by Moses in the law. That's old. It's the idea of the conveyance of grace in eating those things that's new. So these people had been convinced by someone that God's grace for spiritual vitality was being conveyed by eating some ritual sacrifice, some ritual offering. Yeah, now for the Jew, when we look at the book of Leviticus, there was only one offering that the laity could eat. Does anybody know what that was? It was the fellowship offering. The fellowship offering. That's the only one that the laity were allowed to engage in. But the author is saying that there is nothing you can eat that will convey grace to you. There's no spiritual benefit in anything that you eat. Paul said, but food does not commend us to God. How I wish it did, but it does not. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. So God is not waiting for us to eat some ritual meal of any kind so that he can grant his grace to establish us. No food, no meal does that. Paul told the Colossians that it's by our holding fast to Christ that we grow and are nourished. That's it, Colossians 2.19. Jesus taught that we abide in him. That's how we bear fruit, John 15, verse 5. Okay? It's our relationship to Christ through faith that conveys grace to us. The idea of ritual foods or any food conveying the grace of God is novel. Have you heard, you know, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. <clears throat> Might be true. It's probably true. Okay. Yeah. This idea of conveying grace through food, it wasn't taught in the Old Testament. And it's foreign to the new. Paul told the Romans, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not eating and drinking. We will eat and drink in the kingdom. But it's not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 
17. So eating has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, has everything to do with righteousness, peace, and joy through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. This new doctrine, he says, was no benefit. Now, that statement uh, is probably something he knew just because the scriptures don't teach it, but it was probably something that he had observed in someone else. For the sake of being established by grace, they were eating these foods. He was watching them, and he saw no fruit from it. He says, look, I know firsthand by watching these people. They're not any more spiritual than someone else. Okay? It hasn't benefited them. So get away from it. Get away from it. Now, mind you, at this point in church history, uh, everything was kind of novel, was novel because Christianity was just recently born. We're only 30 years or so past the birth of the church. And it wasn't like they had social media and cell phones and Twitter and other things to spread crazy ideas quickly around the church. You understand that? Yeah, we're at the tail end of all that and it's, it's all upon us like a flood these days. And as I said, you know, anything new is not true. Uh, it seems that old heresies and false teachings are typically just recycled. They just cycle themselves through the church over and over and over again. And I don't know that I've heard many, you know, really new things. Maybe the Toronto blessing was new and um, some others, but most of them are just, they're just old stuff that's been reintroduced, repackaged, and sold yeah. The issue of food, of course, has been a constant issue uh, in the church, especially among Jewish believers. You know, Peter struggled with it in Acts 10 when the Lord told him to get up, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, uh, I don't think so. Nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. Okay. And this problem then reoccurred again in a different way in Antioch uh, that Paul pointed out in Galatians chapter 2. Of course, Peter got in trouble again, okay? And then Paul discusses this whole issue in Romans 14, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then in Colossians 2. The issue of food is constantly coming up in the early church, and uh, most of it had to do with Jewish stuff, but then others had to do with the pagans who were coming out of paganism and into Christianity, okay? That is probably what's uh, it's definitely what's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But here, in this text, no biblical discernment was applied when this novel thing was introduced. Nobody thought, well, let's filter this through the scriptures. Let's check it by the text. Let's see if it was taught by Christ and the apostles or practiced by them. And so what happened was their minds were hijacked, their theological mind. Maybe a better word is hacked. For all you millennials, hacked. Somebody got in. Somebody got to the helm and took control. Discernment was discarded and they let their guard down. They heard it, they saw it, they went along with it, they got carried away. Now, typically, uh, as many of you know, this usually requires some slick preacher. He can speak persuasively and he has some level of charisma, all the things that I lack. <laughs> But still, every professor and every doctrine needs to be tested, amen? I don't care who it comes from. It needs to be tested. And thankfully, someone in the fellowship showed some discernment, otherwise 
the author here would not have known anything about it. Okay? Not everybody in the church was into it, but some were. Some were in it hook, line, and sinker, distracted by something that was of no benefit. Nothing has changed today. New ideas, false teachings, they always show up on the radar. Always show up on the radar. And they're generally accepted by believers who are not studied and grounded in the scriptures. They, they believe the scriptures well enough, but they don't really know the scriptures. So when they encounter this stuff, they lack biblical discernment to identify it for what it is. More easily they're duped, and like these Hebrew Christians. You know, this has been a concern of God's and every pastor since the time of Moses. You read Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 18. He was warning them. He says, get ready for this. It's coming your way. False teachers, prophets, preachers. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. The Romans in chapter 14 through 16. The, the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He rebuked the Galatians almost throughout the whole book. He warned the Ephesians in chapter 4, 11 through 16. I can get these verses to you later. I just want to... Um, I want to overwhelm you, okay? Philippians 3, 2, Colossians 2, 16 through 23. The Thessalonians, who can say that anyway? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22, and then 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, 1 through 12. Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11, 4, 1 through 5, 6, 2 through 12. You think pastors should have known about what was coming? Yeah, again, 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, 3, 1 through 9, and 4, 1 through 5. Titus in 1, 19 through 16. And I could go on with Peter. He loved to talk about false teaching and false prophets. Jude, of course, is full of it. Good stuff. Warnings. Yeah, you get it. False teachers abound from the beginning. And they continue on. They come in all different colors and shapes and sizes have for millennia. They're on TBN. They're on YouTube and social, uh, other social platforms. The internet gives birth to a new one every day. Okay? Every day. They don't all have big hair and look crazy. That, that was the 80s. Okay? That's pretty much past. Not every false teacher knocks people over and runs around laughing like a madman on stage. That's not how all of them come. Many of them look professional. They're well-versed and polished. But, you know, who cares what they look like and how they sound? If that was our standard, what about John the Baptist? He wore camel hair and he taught the truth. Okay? So you've got to be careful. You know, what does a false teacher look like? He looks like you guys. Looks like anybody. Okay? It's not how they look. It's about what they teach. Uh, Deuteronomy... 13, Moses says, hey, if a, if a teacher, a preacher, a prophet comes to you and he performs miracles, Moses says, I don't care. What are they teaching? What are they teaching? Okay. And Isaiah says, if they don't teach according to the scriptures, there is no light in them. If they don't teach according to the scriptures, there is no light in them. In them. So the only solution in all of this is to know the scriptures, particularly what it is that Jesus and the apostles taught and what they practiced. Okay, and that is the general rule here at Calvary Chapel. 
If we don't see it taught and practiced by Jesus and the apostles, um, we're pretty leery of it, okay? Let's move to verse 10. We've read it. Let's talk about it. He says, we, and I was talking about the church, have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The, the word right there has the idea of legal right, no legal right. He's basically saying here that the Jews have their own altar, which was located in the tabernacle, the temple, and we as Christians have our altar, so to speak, which was the cross of Jesus that was located on Calvary, okay? The cross was not your typical altar, we know that, but neither was Jesus your typical sacrifice. And this comparison between the offering in the temple is not equivalent. It is not equivalent to Jesus' offering on Calvary because all that was done in the temple was only foreshadowing. It was typifying. We've learned that already from the author of Hebrews, foreshadowing symbolically what Jesus would actually accomplish what he would actually accomplish on the cross. Those were a shadow. They were representing reality, the reality of what Jesus would secure in his atonement. And the author is saying that if anyone worshiped in the Jewish temple, they had no legal right before God to eat from the altar of Calvary. That's what's implied there. To eat from the altar of, eat what? The sacrifice, the sacrifice of Calvary. As the Jews ate portions of their fellowship sacrifices, Christians eat from their sacrifice in a symbolic fashion. Amen? At the Lord's table, we have the elements before us, the bread and the juice representing the Lord's flesh and his blood, which were sacrificed for our sins. But the Lord's Supper is only, as the author is saying, for those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. Nobody else has the right to approach his table. Now, of course, the temple, which he refers to as the tabernacle, no longer exists. There are no sacrifices and there's no altar, just as the cross of Calvary uh, no longer exists. But our sacrifice exists eternally, eternally. Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. He ascended to heaven where he's waiting to return waiting to return. And so we symbolically eat the sacrifice, the Lord's table, as a memorial of our atonement. But the Jew should never eat of it. He has not believed on the atonement of Christ. He's still depending on the latter, still depending. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp, the bodies of the sacrifice. They're burned outside. Now, the comparison is now clearly between the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and that of Jesus. That's made clear by the reference to the high priest and uh, the description of the offering there. The Day of Atonement, it was, it was his big day, the high priest, once a year to offer sacrifice and the description of what followed the sacrifice are consistent with that. We've been here already in the book of Hebrews, the, the high priest, he would offer a young bull for his own sins, the blood of which he would carry through the holy place into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle on the mercy seat. So he would have to be purged 
first. And then he would offer a goat for the sins of the people, the blood of which he would also take beyond the first veil and through the second and sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. But then he would have the bodies of those animals taken out of the camp, out of the city, and burned in a holy place. Now the comparison here between Jesus' offering and that of the Day of Atonement signifies that Jesus' sacrifice fulfilled the Day of Atonement. Fulfilled it. Now, I know there are some people maybe in this room who are waiting for Jesus to fulfill the Day of Atonement by some end times event. But according to this passage, Jesus has already fulfilled the Day of Atonement just as he's fulfilled all the other days prescribed by the law of Moses. Okay? The end times event that we should be looking forward to are Christ coming in the cloud for his church. Okay? The second coming of Christ to the earth, the visible millennial reign of Christ over the earth, the new heaven and the new earth, and the eternal state where we live with God and worship him forever on the new earth and in our new bodies. Okay, that's what we should be looking forward to. But I don't see any place where Jesus has yet to, yet to fulfill the day of atonement. Okay? Uh, some say that while he fulfilled the ceremonial ritual of the day of atonement, we should nonetheless expect him to do something on the actual day. The actual day, that is, the day of atonement is a fall feast, uh, just as he did something at Passover and unleavened bread and Pentecost. But I always say, what about new moon, Sabbaths, feasts of trumpets, year of jubilee, and the rest? There's a lot of stuff there. And uh, I don't know, why couldn't Jesus just take care of that on one day, one sacrifice, and all of the rest? We'll see. But he certainly fulfilled the day of atonement, as the text is telling us. The the real challenge with this verse is not that... uh, Only does unbelieving Jew not have the right to eat from the altar of Christ, as it were. He wasn't allowed to eat from any sacrifice that was a sin offering. That was a sin offering of which the day of atonement was and as the sacrifice of Jesus was. That's the interesting thing now. We're talking about eating ritual food, as it were, but we're in the context of sin offerings, which no Jew was allowed to eat, not even the high priest. He could eat the sacrifice of the fellowship offering, but not a sin offering. And the context here has no place for a fellowship offering, none. Now some believe that when we gather at the Lord's table that it's equivalent uh, to the fellowship offering, that this was a fulfillment of it, In other words, we're sitting down with the Lord and having a fellowship meal together, just as the Jews used to do in the temple after bringing their fellowship offering. Well, I agree, Jesus most definitely fulfilled the fellowship offering and restored peace with God, but that's nowhere in the author's mind here. Now, you might be able to bring that out of 1 Corinthians 10, 16, but not from the author of Hebrews, okay? Jesus' sacrifice is treated here as the sin offering of sin offerings. Amen? The sin offering of sin offerings, just as it was in Hebrews 9. And what is interesting, unlike the Jew, we are commanded, 
We are commanded by God to partake of this offering. And therefore, we have the legal right and the privilege to do it. Yeah. The author of Hebrews previously said that the blood of bulls and goats, those from the Day of Atonement, though they were offered year after year, could never purify the worshiper. Year after year, they could never take away sin. But by Jesus' one offering, the author said in chapter 10, he has forever perfected us. One sacrifice for all time, cleansing us from all sin. And perhaps it's because of the efficacy of Jesus' offering that we get to partake of his sacrifice. The Jews perhaps could not eat of their sin offering because it didn't actually take away sin, and to eat from it would have signified that they had been once for all cleansed from their sin. So they were never allowed to touch it. Okay. Those things just foreshadowed what Christ actually did. They just represented reality, and therefore the worshiper could never experience true forgiveness. Sins can only be taken away in Christ. You know, the Jews, at the celebration of Yom Kippur, they could only celebrate that the wrath of God against their sin was delayed. That year after year, when they offered the bull and the goat, that it just pushed God's wrath further into the future. That's what it was doing, okay? And it pushed it into the future until a specific day. The day that the Lamb of God went to Mount Calvary and took away their sins, okay? Like a flood, the wrath of God was poured out over Jesus. And it was poured out over Jesus until his holy hatred for sin was satisfied. Now, something that I think has to always be said when we talk about the atonement of Christ is that just because God's wrath for sin was satisfied, it doesn't mean that Jesus' atonement was universally applied. Okay, remember the author has said that those who worship in the tabernacle have no right to eat at this altar, the altar of Calvary. The only way to legally approach the Lord's table is through the repentance of sin and faith in Christ who suffered for our sin. You see, at the moment that someone repents and trusts in Christ, they are then granted the legal right. They're given the privilege to approach and eat from the sacrifice. Okay? That's why we don't let uh, unbelievers uh, practice and celebrate communion here at Calvary Chapel. You have to be a believer. Verse 12 He says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Now, the comparison, he's he's continuing with it. Just as the carcasses from the Day of Atonement were taken outside the city, Jesus, too, was taken beyond the gate where he shed his blood and suffered for our sins. The, The purpose for those sacrifices being taken outside the city The author is telling us it foreshadowed Jesus' offering being made outside the city where sins would actually be atoned for. So Jesus' offering was made outside the temple, outside the city on a different mountain, on a different altar to distinguish it from what the temple could only symbolize. As the author has told us, everything in the temple, 
And all that took place there represented Jesus' atonement on that day. So wherever Jesus was, it's interesting, according to the author of Hebrews, wherever he was, it was the place of atonement. He was the ultimate mobile tabernacle. He was the place of atonement. The author has told us that Jesus is the great high priest who presents the offering. But he also told us that Jesus is the offering. He's the sacrifice. He is the veil. He is the mercy seat. And it was his blood shed for the sins of the people. They were acting out what he would actually do. As our great high priest, he carried his altar up the mountain. And then as the sacrifice for our sins, he was laid on that altar. And as the mercy seat, he was drenched in his own blood for the atonement of our sins. That is wild. It's wild. The only atonement recognized by God. And so the author says, verse 13, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now there's some pretty radical claims and demands in that statement. But he's, of course, he's been doing it throughout the whole book, okay? He's telling these Jewish believers once again that all of their ties to Judaism, the law of Moses, the temple, the sacrificial system needed to be left behind. You must come out. You must, be, you must experience union with Christ. The religious identity no longer resided in that context. Through the blood of Christ, the author said in Hebrews 8.13, all of that stuff was made obsolete. So why would you be entertaining ritual foods anyway? There's no benefit in it. From the heart, they needed to leave it all behind and by faith identify with Jesus who was rejected. He was shamed, ridiculed, and crucified for their sins. They needed to forsake everything for Jesus and trust in nothing else. They needed to recognize that everything in their former religious system found its fulfillment in Jesus. And therefore, everything in that system was void of any spiritual value in the system, okay? Jesus is everything. All of that stuff was designed by God to be temporary. As we taught in Hebrews 8, it was with planned obsolescence as all of our appliances are today. The temple, the sacrificial system, was given to the Jews with planned obsolescence to be left behind by the sacrifice and the blood of Christ. It was time. Even the city, he says, that represents all of that stuff was temporary. The Jerusalem now is not their eternal home. The new Jerusalem and the real temple is the new home. Okay, so stop cleaning, clinging to the old system and the city that represented it. Instead, the author says, verse 15 and 16, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. I told you, we're gonna try to come back to the simplicity of all this. 
okay? There's no further blood sacrifices to be made for sin, but we still have sacrifices. We do. The sacrifice that we bring is offered through Christ, and it's praise, it's thanksgiving, it's doing good, and it's sharing with those in need. All of those things are considered worship in the context of Christianity. Yeah. So here's the gist of what the author was saying to his Jewish audience. He says, do not get caught up and occupy yourself with various and strange doctrines that weren't delivered to you from the apostles, which are of no spiritual benefit. You need to abandon hope in all religious systems that do not conform to the faith that was delivered to us by the apostles. And you must identify with Christ and his reproach. And in your worship, you need to give thanks and praise to God and do good and share with your fellow man. Now, um, and he says, all of which, verse 15, is well-pleasing to God. Isn't that pretty simple? I think it's really simple. Uh, but why is it so difficult? You know, Paul said to the Corinthians, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. The simplicity. Yeah. A lot of people have a way of complicating the faith of Christ by adding things that can't be found really in the scriptures and in the end, they have no spiritual benefit at all. It usually happens when people fail to be fulfilled in Jesus, which is their own fault, by the way, and then they become vulnerable to other things. Or they're not grounded in the scriptures, which makes them vulnerable to false teaching and teachers who would just love to occupy them with things that are of no value and things that are dangerous. They get caught up in things that aren't in Scripture. They get bogged down with minor things. They make them major things. We've had that problem here at Calvary more than anything else. People that get, they, they major on little things and they make it a big deal and it's not. Or they get carried away by the latest thing, what Scripture calls a wind of doctrine. People get hung up on insignificant doctrines, religious diets. My favorite is the lunar calendars and the blood moons. Other spiritual movements, zombie apocalypses, end times crazes. And I love end time stuff, but I've got other things to teach, okay? These people are up one moment, they're down the next. One day they're Joe spiritual, and the next day they're carnal. They're off on this tangent, and suddenly they're gone with the next. They follow this guy. Now they follow that guy. They're into the latest church model or movement. And then the guy they followed last month cheats on his wife. And now they've got nowhere to turn. They put all their stock in that person rather than the person of Christ and his word. The author says the heart needs to be established by grace, which can only happen by keeping one's focus on Jesus and their eyes in his word. Then they'll always be steady They'll be stable, and they'll be grounded. They don't get knocked to and fro by every wind of doctrine that blows through the church, Ephesians 4. They don't get itching ears and go looking for teachers to scratch their ears for them, 
2 Timothy 4, they don't get spun when somebody puts a spin on the scriptures. They're just anchored by grace. As the author said in the previous chapter, they've received grace in order to serve God for his approval, Hebrews 12, 28. These are the students, the practitioners of grace. As Paul says in Titus 2, the grace has taught them through the word of grace to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It's taught them to be sober, to be righteous and godly in the present age. And he says grace teaches them to look forward to the second coming of Christ. You know, looking forward to the second coming is a good thing. It helps you get ready, amen? Yeah. It's Titus 2, 11 through 13. They're always growing in grace through the knowledge of Jesus. They walk in the scriptures. They know that only the scriptures are a light and a lamp to their path, teaching them not to go to the right hand or the left. I know I started with my left hand, but nobody was noticing. They don't look beyond the scriptures, as Paul told the Corinthians not to do. They reside in them, and they trust in their counsel, established through grace, tethered to Christ. And if you're tethered to Christ, you just can't be shaken. If death couldn't stop him, I think he's a pretty unstoppable force. If you're anchored to him, wherever he is, you will be. Stay in his word and trust him. Now let me... uh, I think what's most pertinent is let me conclude with Paul's discussion to the Ephesian elders. We talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, and he was warning them, and he says that I've done this with tears, that up from among your own, the terrible people, heretics will come, trying to divide the flock. He says they'll come from within and they'll come from without, all kinds of bad people. He wanted them to be ready, and he said this. He said, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. All this stuff is going to happen. It's coming your way. And I just want to leave you with this one bit of counsel. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. To God and the word of his grace. Let's go ahead and pray. I guess the worship team's gonna come forward too. Why don't you stand and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And uh, Lord, you're surprised by no false doctrine. And those that are anchored and established in grace, they're going to make it through. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that you would teach us more and more, Lord, to be established by grace, to trust you, to trust your word. And, Lord, I'm very confident that out of all that's happened in the last few months around the world, there's going to be a lot of winds of doctrine. There's going to be a lot of false teaching, conspiracies, and a whole variety of things. And Lord, people are going to be tempted to get caught up in something. 
and their eyes are gonna get taken off your word. Their, the stability of their heart is gonna be removed from the scriptures. They're gonna be fearful and unbelieving. And so Lord, I pray for your church, I pray for Calvary Chapel, that we would keep our focus where it belongs <clears throat> and we trust you. That we would learn your word and we'd walk in it. So grant us your grace to do that and just ground us, Lord. Stabilize us, we pray. Lord, I thank you for my church family and I do pray that you would lavish that grace upon them this week. Help them to walk in the sacrifices that we've talked about. Help them to be a benefit to their fellow man and to be a spokesman of the gospel. Bless them, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.